Thanksgiving was beautiful. I hope you enjoyed Thanksgiving with your family. I hope you ate not too much, but just enough. I hope you didn't go towards gluttony. That would be a sin, and you would probably need to repent. But I do hope that you were able to give great, give thanks, and enjoy your time with your family. I'm so excited for meetups. I don't know about you, um, but as a pastor, meetups feed my soul. And so I can't wait to gather with you in different locations, to hang out, to spend some time together. And I would just totally encourage you, if you are thinking about it or you're unsure, maybe you've never been to a meetup for whatever reason, um, they are coming up and we would love to hang out with you. I know that you will be blessed in doing so. Amen? Amen. 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 Let me ask you a question. Who is your person? Who's your person? Let me explain what I mean by that. Who's that person that you're willing to ditch everyone else for? Right? Who's that person that like anytime you even get just an ounce of free time, you are with them? Do you have that person? In fact, you know they're your person because your friends and your family roll their eyes and make fun of you because you can't do anything without them. You're attached at the hip. If you're married, it better be your spouse. (laughs) Uh, But if not, there might be a healthy person out there. But you know what I'm talking about. Who's your person? And Uh, And again, this might be a little triggering for some of you, right? Because you're automatically thinking about a a, a significant other. And some of you find yourself single during the holidays, right? You didn't have a Thanksgiving boo. (laughs) The Christmas boo prospects are dry. (laughs) But really, your person can be anyone. It doesn't have to be a significant other. It could be a best friend. It could be a sibling, um, it could be a cousin, just anyone you absolutely love being with them in their presence. And in a way, this is God's desire for us. And as Christians, this is really our ultimate hope. In fact, that ultimate hope as Christians is encapsulated in Revelation 21.3. It describes our hope. It says this, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, amen? And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the desire of God. This is the theme of scripture, This is the hope of humanity and really the true meaning of Christmas. God with us, God among us, God living and dwelling tangibly, presently in paradise for all of eternity alongside of his people. This is our ultimate hope. This is God's ultimate desire for us this is the theme of scripture and the true meaning of christmas god with us god with us god present among us let's pray 
Jesus, will you be present? Will you be our person this morning in this space through your word and through your Holy Spirit that illuminates the word so that all the hearts and minds in this room will leave this room with you having spoken clearly to them. So I ask for your strength and your grace to communicate. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have entitled this year's Advent series. It's, it's our Christmas series yearly that we start right after, Christ, right after Thanksgiving leading up to Christmas. And really Advent just means coming. It's, Advent is the coming of Jesus. We've entitled this year's Advent series, God with us. God with us. And for the next four weeks... We've chosen to turn our attention toward the tabernacle. Are you familiar with the tabernacle in the scriptures? Now, unfortunately, if you are familiar with the tabernacle, God bless you. But unfortunately, many Christians, when it comes to the tabernacle story, they skim or skip it in their Bible reading plans. Y'all ever get to like Leviticus? Just kind of like skim or skip over that because it is so meticulous, so detailed, so tedious. And you're like, God, why did you even include this section? Well, really, many Christians skim or skip over the tabernacle section because of that reason. Yet, listen, every meticulous detail of the tabernacle testifies to the incarnation of Christ. Every detail Every meticulous point that God is careful to tell testifies of the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus. And I believe this series on the tabernacle will serve us richly. It'll serve us well as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. Because a lot of us prepare for Christmas by shopping on Black Friday and the commercialization of Christmas, uh, the monetizing of Christmas. Uh, threatens not just the adults in the room, but the children in the room. It tempts us to define Christmas something in a way that it is not. Are you with me? And so it's my prayer and my hope. The story of the tabernacle will richly enhance and prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, would you open with me to Exodus 25? Exodus 25, and I think I do this weekly now, where I want to give you time to open your Bibles and even ask the hosts maybe to turn the lights up a little bit in the room so that as you're looking for the Bible, you can see it. (laughs) You can see the words you're turning to. If you have your Bible apps, you can go there as well. But please open with me to Exodus 25. Thank you. Exodus chapter 25, and we are going to read verses 1 through 8 today, but before we read through that, I want to just give you, I'm going to kind of catch you up to speed uh, with where we're at in the story of the Exodus. Amen? Amen? Exodus 25. And while you're turning there, let me catch you up on the Exodus story. 
We can frame Exodus in three sections. Chapters 1 through 19 are really the story of the Exodus. It's the story of how God miraculously, amen, saves Israel from Egyptian slavery. And then chapters 20 through 24 is, is, is about the law. After God miraculously saves Israel from Egyptian slavery, God covenants with Israel. He, he comes into an agreement, a marriage with Israel, and then he gives them his commands. You remember the commandments. And then finally, in the last section of, of Exodus, chapters 25 to 40, there's detail about this thing called the tabernacle. And we learn that God doesn't just save his people, but he desires to live with them. He desires to be in their midst. He desires to dwell with Israel. Fifteen chapters dedicated to this idea of God dwelling among his people. In fact, the first seven chapters will talk about the instructions God will give Moses very detailed instructions about the building of this tabernacle. And then there'll be three chapters where Israel will have an epic fail. And they'll, God will have to sort things out as they fall into a time of idolatry. And then finally, the last six chapters of Exodus uh, will detail the construction. So you have seven chapters of instruction, three chapters of idolatry, and then six chapters of construction. That means that the story of the tabernacle takes up about 33% of the book. Detailing meticulously a tent. A tent. And what is God doing? Why is he doing this? You see, God is not just demonstrating to Israel. But he's demonstrating to all of us. Are you ready? That salvation and sanctification are not ends in themselves, but that God saves us, he cleans us so that we can live with him. That the ultimate goal of God and the ultimate hope of humanity for us is not that we would be saved. Do you know that? The ultimate goal is not our salvation. The ultimate goal is not the law. Some of us Christians walk around as if that's the ultimate thing. But the ultimate goal is that God would save us and clean us. Are you ready? So that he could what? Live with us. Yeah. Salvation and sanctification aren't just means to a greater end. A greater and more glorious end. God with us. Amen? Yeah. So if you have your Bibles now, we can go there. Exodus. 25, and we are going to read verses 1 through 8. Are you ready? Amen. Scripture reads like this. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them gold, silver, and bronze, 
blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linens, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture so you shall make it this is the beginning of the detailing of the building of a tabernacle Are you ready so that what I may what dwell in their midst after spending 40 nights 40 days in the presence of God on top of Mount Sinai, Moses now comes down with specific instructions. Are you ready? And these instructions are for Moses to, ready, collect a special contribution in order to build a sacred space according to a divine pattern. Again, 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain with God. Moses descends and he comes down with instructions to collect a special contribution. To build a sacred space according to the divine pattern. So that what? God may dwell with them. Now what was this special contribution? Let's talk about it. God asked for seven categories of materials. Did you see that? Let me break that down for you. First, he asked for three types of metals. Bronze, silver, and gold. Now, these were the three basic metals of antiquity. The second category that he asked for is three colors of dyed yarns did you see that blue purple and scarlet now you have to understand that these were the most precious colors of antiquity you see blue and purple did you know they came from a mediterranean sea snail <laughs> there you go so all you blue and purple in the room now you know everyone looking at them like oh we came from snails so Blue and purple came from a Mediterranean sea snail. And check it out. Each snail only contained a, a drop of dye. And so it made these colors very unique, valuable, and precious. In fact, later on, we'll know that the Roman emperors and the Byzantine emperors will actually use blue and purple to symbolize their royalty. And if you look at Israel's flag today, the blue of their flag actually represents this blue in this space. Three types of metals, three colors of dyed yarn, and then three kinds of fabrics, right? Goat's hair, sounds comfortable. And assorted leather. Anybody want a leather jacket for Christmas? I do. If you want to bless your pastor, that'd be great. Assorted leathers, and the two that were brought up were the ram's skins and the goat's skins. A fourth item of material was acacia wood. 
And acacia wood was interesting because it was hard and durable, yet it was light in weight. Number five, there was olive oil to fuel the lamps that would provide the light. Number six, there were spices to blend. And when you blend these spices, you created incense to burn at the altar. And then when you mix these spices with the olive oil, you would create an anointing oil that was used to consecrate the tabernacle, its furniture, and the priests. And finally, number seven, there were gemstones, specifically onyx stones. And they were mounted on the high priest's ephod. Twelve precious stones were put on his breastplate. These twelve stones would represent the twelve tribes of Israel. That as the high priest would enter into the tabernacle to commune with God, that all of Israel would be represented in that space. How y'all doing? And and yet as precious as these materials were, what made the contribution truly special, are you ready? was not the preciousness of the materials, but the motivation behind Israel's giving. Did you see that? I love this. God instructs Moses to collect a contribution. And he says this, from every man whose heart moves him. God's dwelling place would not be the result of slave labor. That was Pharaoh. That was Egypt. But it would be the product of worship. It would be built on gratitude. It would would be a grateful response of a people who had been rescued by God out of Egypt. And this is so ironic. God's first requirement for the building of the tabernacle was that Israel's contribution wouldn't be a requirement. But that it would be a generous response of worship to the goodness of God. That they would joyfully and willfully give. As the Apostle Paul would later say, cheerful giving. That they would not have to be manipulated or coerced to give. God wasn't saying, if you don't give, you'll be cursed. Unfortunately, we hear that in a lot of sermons today. God wasn't saying, if you do give, you'll be blessed. We hear that too in many sermons, don't we? And don't get me wrong, there's a blessing. But I want you to know that the primary motivation, Israel gave not to avoid cursing or to attract blessing. They gave because God had saved them. Are you guys with me? This is good understanding of giving. They gave not to avoid a curse. They gave not to attract a blessing. But they gave because God saved them. And they knew this and understood this. God would have it no other way. The only motivation for God's dwelling place would be love. The only motivation, God with us, God among us, build me a tabernacle, would not be forced, manipulated. But the motivation of his dwelling place among his people would be love, gratefulness, a response. To what? A response because he brought them out of Egypt. 
delivered them from slavery. Wow. You know what's fascinating? We're told in Exodus 36.5 that the workers were so overwhelmed by Israel's generosity that they came to Moses and told him the, bring, the people are bringing too much. You guys with me? Yeah. You guys with me? <laughs> uh, the people, listen, they, the, the workers were so overwhelmed by the generosity of Israel that they had to go to Moses and say, make them stop. They're bringing too much. And, this, and I quote this in verse 5 of 36 of Exodus. It says, we're bringing, they're bringing too much and that there was, ready? No, there was more than enough for doing the work that the Lord had commanded. This special contribution was used, are you ready? To help build a sacred space. Sacred space. There are two words used in verses eight and nine that I believe reveal, and this is really important. I don't have it here on the notes, but if you're taking notes, this is a really important thing just to consider and think about throughout the week. Verses eight and nine are two words that I believe reveal both a glorious union and a terrible tension. It's really important, a glorious union and a terrible tension. There's two words. It's the word tabernacle and the word sanctuary. In fact, you'll see God at the end of uh, uh, verses eight and nine use the word tabernacle and sanctuary interchangeably. On one hand, this would be a tabernacle. Anybody go camping in here? Any campers? Any glampers? This was definitely not glamping. <laughs> this would be a tabernacle, which would ultimately be translated a tent. God would have Israel build him a tent. A tent. God's dwelling would not be a permanent building. Amen. And all those that inspire said amen. <laughs> Don't worry, one day. God's dwelling would not be a permanent building. Are you ready? But a nomad's tent. A nomad's tent designed for mobility. Tear down and set up team. <laughs> the, uh, the, the ability to tear down and set up as Israel would travel and move along. God would be among his people and he would move with his people. When he went, they went. When they went, he went. Wherever they go, God would be with them. On the other hand, it wasn't just a tabernacle, but God called this tent a sanctuary. Sanctuary. You know, the word sanctuary in today's day and age, it really means like a refuge or a safe place. And this really is something that David will talk about in the Psalms. But the word sanctuary really means holy and consecrated. A sacred space where the Shekinah glory of God in the form of a billowing cloud. Can you imagine that? Would descend upon the camp and descend into the tent. You guys see the tension? It was a tented place. In fact, it was a tented palace for Israel's divine king. And this glorious union, there it is, 
of tabernacle and sanctuary signified an even more glorious invasion of heaven on earth. You could say that wherever the tabernacle was, the center of the cosmos resides. You could say that this sacred space was where heaven and earth touched each other and commingled. You see that? You see the glorious union, the domain, the realm, the space where heaven and earth collided? What a beautiful and glorious union that truly was. But there was also a terrible tension. Yes, yes, God wanted to be close. He wanted to come near, but he's holy and you're a sinner. You with me? Yes, God wants to come close. Yes, God wants to come near, but he is holy and I'm a sinner. And holiness and sin cannot stand in the same space. Do you see that? Do you feel that terrible tension? So what we learn from this tabernacle sanctuary dynamic is a really critical lesson. God longs to be close, but intimacy with God is impossible. Are you with me? God longs to be close, but intimacy with God is impossible apart from him making it possible in some kind of extraordinary way. God wants to be close, but intimacy with him because you and I are sinners is impossible. And so the only way that we can be near and intimate with a holy God is if he makes an extraordinary way possible. This is what the tabernacle is teaching us. This is why we don't skim or skip or speed read. Every meticulous detail was laid out so we would understand something about God's holiness and something about our sinfulness and how those two things cannot coexist unless God does something about it. And can I say this about the tabernacle? It didn't resolve that tension. It didn't resolve that tension. In fact, it was just a preliminary way, a symbolic space of God being with his people. But it didn't resolve the tension. Can we geek out for a minute? Permission to geek out 9 a.m.? that okay? Yeah. All right. Woo. Good job. Permission to geek out. Give me a minute. Um, I want to kind of describe this space to you, this sacred space. This sacred space featured three sections and uh, had seven pieces of furniture. Now, if you look at the picture that I provided, the area surrounding the tent was called the outer courts. You see it? So you see the tent there in the middle and then you have the surrounding spaces and then you actually have everything walled off. 
that surrounding area was called the outer courts. And if you notice in there, you'll see two furniture, two pieces of furniture, two items there. You'll see um, a bronze altar for burnt offering. And you'll see a bronze water basin for the ceremonial washing of the priests. You guys with me? Now, if you look at the tent, inside of the tent, there were two chambers, two chambers. Now, this is going to be a little bit more difficult to see. I want you to focus more on the tent section than anything else. You see how it's kind of opened up for you. Inside of that, there were two chambers. The first chamber was called the holy place. And it contained an incense altar, a table for showbread, literally bread, on this table. And a golden lampstand that was fashioned in the form of a tree. Now the innermost chamber was called the Holy of Holies. So you have the outer courts, the holy place, and the most holy place or the Holy of Holies. How are we doing? And the Holy of Holies contained what we know as the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you're a Christian, you probably know this because it's been taught. If you're not, maybe you've watched Indiana Jones. Um, or maybe you are a Christian, it's never been taught, and you watch Indiana Jones. We'll have to talk about your previous pastors. But nonetheless, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it's really cool because on top of the Ark, you see two cherubim kind of leaning over with their wings touching. So let me just explain the construct of the ark. So what you have is an ark with acacia wood, obviously layered with gold. Now inside of this ark, the ark was basically a chest, and inside of this ark held the tablets that Moses had brought down from Sinai, the law. Are you with me? It housed the law. And on top of the ark was a gold-plated lid, basically, but we call it the mercy seat. It's a lid, a gold-plated lid, but it, we call it the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was literally considered the throne of God. So that when God would descend, when the Shekinah glory would come, Israel knew that God would sit on top of the lid, in between the cherubim. And the ark would be his footstool. Fascinating. This was the holy place, the, the most holy place, the holy of holies. It was a place where Yahweh himself would come to meet with his people, sit on the mercy seat in between the cherubim, and use the ark as his footstool. All of Israel, and this is, this is fascinating. You ready for this? Did you know that all of Israel would encamp around the tabernacle. The tabernacle would be stationed in the middle of the camp. And what was even more incredible was that in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, would be the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark would be the tablets. What does that mean? Israel literally encamped around the word of God. Whereas other nations encamped around their 
human kings. Israel encamped around the divine word of God. Because it was his word that represented his authority. And to know his will and to know his way would come by his word. In fact, fun fact, there are denominations, including ours, that have created their sanctuary in a way in which the congregation either looks at the pulpit or sits around the pulpit, not so that the pastor could be at the center, but so that the word of God being properly preached would be at the center of the congregation. So that the divine king and his divine word would be revealed to his people. God with us. God among us. Are you guys seeing this? Now moving from the outside in, there were three zones of increasing holiness. Three zones of increasing holiness. There was the courtyard, right? Then the holy place, and then the most holy place. You get that? Three zones of increasing holiness. And this was signified because the people of God actually could only go to the entrance with their sacrifices, but they weren't allowed to go in. The priests would then go into the outer courts, zone one. And then the priests would go into the holy place, zone two. But guess what? Zone three, the most holy place, nobody could enter but the high priest, and he could only enter once a year on the day of atonement put little bells on him because if he entered in and he wasn't properly consecrated he would fall dead the bells stopped ringing it means he wasn't alive pull him out are you with me you see these zones of increasing holiness it even communicates something about sanctification doesn't it the closer you got to the presence of God the more consecrated and sanctified you had to be And these increasing zones of holiness were symbolized by the materials that actually became increasingly more precious as you went. Starting in the outer courts, you had the bronze. And as you enter into the holy place and the holy of holies, the bronze would move to silver and move to gold. And each internally between the holy place and the holy of holies, there would actually be a veil, a separation, a curtain that actually separated the outer courts from the inner courts and the inner courts from the Holy of Holies. It was a warning. Don't come into this space unless you are consecrated and appointed to come into this space. You know, it was actually fascinating too. The curtain between the holy place and the Holy of Holies, the innermost chamber, actually had cherubim on the curtain. And I heard somebody say this. You know how we have like a skull and crossbones warning sign? To warn people not to go. Warning signs, right? That for them, the ancient world, for the Israelites, the cherubim signified that. Because if you remember the story of Genesis, it was God who what? Put the cherubim to guard the garden. That represented God's paradise, his presence. And so what you actually see here, which is really fascinating. I don't have time to go into it. You're actually seeing a recreation. This is the Garden of Eden being recreated. Genesis, man forfeits 
paradise. And in Exodus, God begins to rebuild it back up. Y'all wanted to skip over this part. (laughs) We doing okay? And I want you to know, these contributions helped build a sacred space according to a divine pattern. Hmm. It's a really interesting thing. A divine pattern. I don't know if you caught this, but in verse 9... We see God tell Moses to build, ready, exactly as I show you. Moses didn't come down and say, hey, guys, I have this great idea. This is what we're going to do. But Moses, while spending 40 days and 40 nights on Sinai, was receiving instructions. God says, do this, build this exactly the way that I show you. You see, Moses was instructed, are you ready? Ready? And if, can we go back to actually uh, number one, image one, if that's possible? There it is. Thank you. So good. You guys are on top of it. Moses, are you ready? Was instructed to make a copy or a model, a replica of something else. That's not it. This is going to be really hard for us. It was hard for me to wrap my mind around this. That's not it, y'all. But it, God said, look, I'm going to show you something. And what you're going to build is a copy Moses was to build, are you ready, an earthly reflection of a divine reality. What what was it? An earthly reflection of a divine reality. Though this tabernacle was a sanctuary, it was holy, it was consecrated. Are you with me? It was holy. It was only a shadow of something even greater to come. A divine copy. If I had the worship team come up, it was a shadow. You guys feel that? Can I let that sit for a second? Are you with me? Because this is the most important part. Like, if you're not here for any part, this is it. And I know the team's moving in, but stay with me. Like, Moses, you're going to build something, and it's going to be consecrated. And it's going to be holy. And I'm going to be very meticulous and detailed. And we're going to work this thing out. And you're going to create this sacred space. And it's going to be blocked off by increasing zones of holiness. And only some can enter. And even in the most holy place, I will meet you there. But only the high priest once a year. In fact, the only way Israel can get in is through 12 gemstones that represent them. On the Day of Atonement, like, I'm going to show you something. You're going to build it. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be mobile. It's going to be holy, but it is not it. It's a copy. It's a shadow. It's a type of something greater to come. Because there is a terrible tension between my holiness and your sinfulness and the tabernacle doesn't resolve that. Matthew chapter 1, 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us.
John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. The phrase dwelt among us can actually be, can actually be translated tabernacled, tented. John 1, 1 should read, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He tented among us. The glory of God has appeared. And this time, there's a new tabernacle. There's a new temple. Jesus is the greater tabernacle. Pastor and, pastor and Bible teacher Paul Carter says this, if you don't understand the centrality of the, old, of, the, of the tabernacle in the Old Testament theology, you will not understand or properly appreciate the ministry and majesty of Jesus. He is the meeting place between heaven and earth. He is the fullness of God's holiness cloaked in humanity. He is truly man and truly God. In him, the Shekinah glory that fell on the tent resided holy. He is the greater tabernacle, the greater temple, the greater high priest, the greater sacrifice because he is the glorious union that resolves the terrible tension. And it is because of him that we can dwell with God. It is because of him that the veils were torn. It is because of him that if we are in Christ, we could one day fully hope for unhindered intimacy with the Almighty God. This is the desire of God. This is the theme of scripture. This is the hope of humanity and the true meaning of Christmas. That in Christ, what began in Exodus 25 will be fully consummated in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is the desire of God the theme of scripture, the hope of man, and the true meaning of Christmas, God with us. And so as you shop, and as you make it all about the gifts, all about the family, all about the food, all about the tree, all about the kids, We want, to, we want to remind you that it's all about God and that his presence is paradise, not his gifts, not his gifts, not his, not his blessings, not, not his power, but that his person is paradise. Let me put it to you like this and then we'll pray. It's like going to a tropical island with a private beach in a villa. If God's not there, that is not paradise. Or it's like living in the streets, in the slums, in a third world country. If God is there, 
That is paradise. Why? Because his presence is paradise. His presence is paradise. God, God with us. And so the question is, how can I ensure that I can be with God? I'm a sinner. The answer is only through the death of Jesus Christ.